if you want to really learn about the science behind sleep and I don't just sort of say that for any sort of reason because a lot of people say that I'm actually a sleep scientist and I'm here to debunk a lot of these sleep myths what is a sleep myth it's basically a lot of stuff that's out there on the internet that is absolutely different to the sleep science so make sure you tune in it'll only take an hour of your time but it'll be a great hour Michael Gratisa, an international sleep expert, scientist, and a professor at one of Australia's top universities. Michael has been treating sleep disorders for more than 20 years and is currently the head of sleep at Sleep Cycle, an app that is used by more than 2 million users worldwide and is revolutionizing how we sleep. We often hear that we need eight hours of sleep. Is that a myth? Maybe. I don't think it matters too much if it's seven or if it's eight. Uh, people are focused on the optimal. And really, you don't need to focus on the optimal. You don't. As long as it's good, then it should be okay. Don't listen to flipping social media. And so here's, here's one classic example. In the hour before bed, don't use technology. So we were the first people to test this in the world where we had a bright iPad shining bright into people's faces in the hour before bed. I think it took probably an extra three or four minutes longer to fall asleep. Coffee and sleep. This whole notion of you shouldn't have coffee after three or two or 12. When we analyzed the data, we couldn't actually see that that was having a strong effect on people's sleep at night. If you don't get enough sleep, now they're sort of showing that those toxins aren't getting flushed out so well. And so over time, chronically, you might be susceptible for something like dementia. Bedtime routine and having a consistent bedtime is actually important. The, and the crazy thing is that we let go of that and then as adults, we don't give a shit. We don't give ourselves, uh, you know, we don't self-regulate and have that bedtime. Uh, yet that is something that it can actually help us. Before we get to this episode, Amin and I had two massive favors to ask. We started this podcast on our passion to connect with interesting people with fascinating stories and sharing those stories with everyone so we can all learn from them. Now, what's truly fueling our growth and to help us share more stories with some very interesting people? One is our passion of storytelling, but also your word of mouth and sharing with your family and friends is just as powerful to help us have more reach to people out there. So please do share it with anyone who you think might benefit from it. Currently, only a third of you that are listening to us are, have followed us on any whatever platform that you are uh, accessing to our podcast. So we would love to see more of you joining that cohort. So please follow us on whatever platform you're hearing this message on. For now, let's get into the episode. Michael, why do we sleep? Yeah, it's always a big question. And I used to answer that question by saying, well, imagine going without sleep and all of the bad things that will happen from it, and that will tell you. But then you have to sort of follow that up because there will be some people who go, oh, yeah, this dude told me to not go and have sleep, but just don't do that. Because we've done plenty of research to actually sort of, you know, see why this happens. But it's been really fascinating that there's been just new discoveries, at least over my career. Um, you know, coming from a clinical psychology background, uh, it's been really a focus for me in terms of how it affects our mental health, uh, a fair bit of that time. And, you know, psychology also involves uh, IQ and performance and memory and all that sort of stuff. And again, those faculties really get affected. But just, you know, like, say, for example, in the last 10 years, having a look at just the the physical health aspects to it. 
and really this whole concept, for example, that, you know, we're awake, we're doing a lot of things, we build up actually toxins, you know, throughout the day. And by the end of the day, we actually need to clean those out and sleep actually helps to do that. You know, that was a really fascinating discovery almost a decade ago. And, you know, if you don't get enough sleep, now they're sort of showing that those toxins aren't getting flushed out so well. And so over time, chronically, you might be susceptible for something like dementia. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, I think a lot of us, especially in the sleep area, we go through almost like this alarmist, sort of non-alarmist roller coaster. We sort of say, you know, you must get sleep, otherwise you'll die. And then we back off and calm down a bit because we sort of see that there are other things that can kill you. And but then there's just more evidence that comes out that shows how strong sleep is linked to so many different things. Um, and, you know, we are biased initially, but I think, you know, it's, it's very hard to ignore the research around it. So you have to get it. It's a need. Take, take me through, you, through your academic career. Like how did you end up researching sleep out of all topics? Yeah, well, in uh, psychology, if you went to Flinders University, did a sort of regular undergraduate degree, uh, you know, at least when I was doing it back in the 90s and probably in the 2000s, it was sort of hard to go from beginning to end without having some sort of sleep class or even a sleep topic. And for me, uh, Professor Leon Lack, he was uh, the guy. And really, he was one of the, if not the first person in Adelaide and one of the first people in Australia to really investigate this area. And um, Leon, if you know him, he's a fantastic storyteller. Uh, he, you know, if it's a lecture, it's just so engaging and fascinating. And I think the thing is that, at least for me and other people that got hooked into sleep, it's it's something that we do. You, you identify with it as opposed to maybe some other topics. Um, and so I really found an interest in it and managed to get uh, some part-time work in Leon's lab, which I then found really interesting. You know, this was like on the forefront of doing the research and really, you know, loved it so much and was just gobbling up all this information that I ended up doing a PhD in it under Leon. And uh, yeah, it just took off from there, really. I just want to jump in and try and understand, did you, I think always have the same perception of sleep and how important it is? Or did you stumble upon this domino at some point in your research? I mean, pre this is obviously pre-PhD, pre doing the work with Leon. I think at what point in your, maybe your career, you figured, I want to really focus on sleep. Yeah, I think it was, it was almost like uh, there was this one opportunity where Initially, I wasn't doing a PhD on sleep. I was actually doing it with uh, kids and looking at uh, how they basically cope through stressful situations. And there was almost like, uh, you know, if you sort of think about doing a PhD, like being on a freeway or the expressway, you know, you have these exit points and, and things weren't going so well with that uh, initial PhD. And I had almost like this lifeline, this way to sort of get off the expressway and, and do something uh, in the sleep area. And I did this thing where I did the whole pros and cons list next to each other. And I was like, you know, better play it safe, better stick, you know, keep going down the expressway. And then I think just the months after that, I was like, maybe that was the wrong decision. And it was probably further into that PhD where, where it really was getting worse and wasn't progressing 
that that lifeline, that exit came up again. And uh, Leon sort of said to me, well, you know, you could do this, A, B, C, D. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. It was a good sell, but, you know, that's what research like. And I was like, yeah, I'm grabbing this. I'm going for it. And that, and I think that was the such a relief and it was such a high as well, like um, just switching from reading the sort of research articles I was reading about with uh, kids going through stressful situations, which obviously is a very important topic. But as soon as I started reading stuff about sleep, I was just gobbling it up. And I was just like, where's the next one? Where's the next one? And that was definitely the uh, defining moments, really being able just to consume just the research and enjoy it. And just, it, I just felt like a sponge. I would have to say it was definitely around that time. You know what I'm yeah. curious about? Like, what would a perfect sleep look like for someone? How would I get a perfect sleep? What would that feel like? And how would I feel? If I get one. And I don't know if there's just one type of perfect sleep. Because, I mean, you know, when you, when you work like myself and, you know, I've worked with people with insomnia, for example, we try to take them from this really bad sleep and there's all varying types of that to good sleep. And as we're doing that process, we get them to monitor the sleep, you know, prior to any sort of like uh, wearables or nearables to automatically measure your sleep, we were getting them to fill out a sleep diary. And it's just so fascinating that you can see that they would fill out this diary in terms of how long it took them to fall asleep, how much they were awake during the night, how much sleep they got, but then rate how good that sleep was. And they could rate really good sleep, but the sleep didn't necessarily look the same every single time. So it really goes to show it is how you feel in the morning. A lot of it depends upon that. Um, so... You know, there was it was interesting where some people with insomnia would go and have maybe six hours of pretty solid sleep and wake up feeling great. And they were like, wow, that was incredible. I don't know whether it's because I slept straight through, but it's ridiculous because I only got six hours of sleep. But I felt great in the morning. And there'll be other times where they would have woken up during the night and got a bit more sleep, but they still felt great. So it's really hard to say what it looks like. I mean, usually people will sort of say, shouldn't take you too long to fall asleep. Like it should take sort of maybe 20 minutes. Like anything that's faster than five minutes, some, something's wrong. Anything longer than 30 minutes, apparently something's wrong. Yeah, so this whole crap about like fall asleep in three minutes, learn this technique. It's like, if you're doing that, like you're probably injected from some sort of anesthesis, you know, to just to knock you out. You, you've pushed the limits way too far. Um, but it is a sign of some sort of sleep disorder that you've got this chronic sleep issue, really, if it takes that, uh, you know, less than five minutes. But if it's longer than 30 minutes, usually that's a sign of an insomnia symptom. Uh, ideally, you shouldn't be, I mean, it's natural to wake up during the night, but you don't want to wake up for too long a period during the night. Um, certainly, you can have a look at the National Sleep Foundation that they're often referred to when it comes to your sort of age group and the amount of sleep that they recommend you should be getting. But, you know, there's variances around that. Um, but I, th I would have to say, if you wake up in the morning, you know, sort of assess how you feel, but don't make necessarily a judgment about how the rest of the day is going to be for you because i think a lot of people make that mistake they go oh i don't feel so great got this podcast i've got to do i don't know if i'm going to be you know firing or anything like that um but you know give yourself some time 15 minutes later once you've had a coffee you've got up you've had a shower you've got dressed you might start to then 
feel differently, much more alert, then you can reassess that prediction. So, yeah, certainly focus on how you feel in the morning, I'd have to say. I think your your answer is circling back earlier around how you ended up doing sleep research. Um, I know Matthew Walker, who I'm sure you've probably spoken to at this point of your career and probably interviewed, um, ended up doing sleep research because he was interested in focus and deep work, I think, from memory. But he apparently landed in the spot where he couldn't make much progress about how do you really concentrate, like to really dig into what does focus look like on a deeper level without skipping sleep. And he goes, right, okay, so I'm going to have to go to sleep and then <laughs> to spend the next 20 years doing sleep, which is really interesting. Yeah, for sure. And and this is the thing is that, yeah, sleep is very indirect in that way. Like you study sleep and, yes, it can provide all these benefits during the day. Even like when we do uh, treatments for insomnia, we're focused on what do you do before bed, what happens when you wake up during the night, and we sort of play around with that sort of stuff with the assumption that they're going to feel better the next day, which they usually do. But a lot of the time we're not really focusing on, okay, now what's your alertness like during the day and what sort of things do you do during the day? I mean, there is some research, you know, there's some research around caffeine, around power naps, for example. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to focus, uh, yeah, certainly you've got to take care of the bigger picture. You've got to get that sort of, you know, base of sleep. But then how are you going to feel at different moments during the day? Because, you know, we've got a circadian rhythm. You can feel not so bad, say, for example, at 10 a.m., but come 2, 3 p.m., which is close to right now, um, you can have a little dip in your circadian rhythm and that's when you can start to get that lull and you might sort of have that less focus as well. Um, but, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool that, you know, you sort of get on this sort of train of sleep research. You don't know where it's going to take you. Yeah. There's a culture happening at the moment, Michael, where, where there is this productivity, getting a lot of things done throughout the day. And I think I was always the victim of this culture about a couple of years ago. And I became overly focused on sleep, um, where I would be so sensitive to noise, to sound, to, to a bit of light. And I'll tell you what, I had plenty of fights with my partner uh, about this. I feel like that's not healthy either, where you become overly focused on sleep. And I think a lot of people do that. Whether it's in that state that you want to be productive, whether it's in the state that you just want to kind of go to sleep. How do like how do we deal with that? Because I feel like it's like a it's a very big issue right now from people that I've spoken to. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think the key thing is that uh, people are focused on the optimal, and really you don't need to focus on the optimal. You don't you, as long as it's good, then it should be okay. It's not a case that you should go for this whole peak performance all the time. You know, we're not like a light switch that you flick on and off. We're a dimmer switch. You know, that's what happens. We sort of go into this sort of lull and we come up and we go down again. And I think it's that pressure, obviously, then on people to do that means that then they're being overly focused. There's a, there's a, there was a good learning lesson I got from uh, this professor, uh, Colin Espy, who's really a big sleep and insomnia guru over in, um, in Scotland. And uh, when he came over, um, he sat in in one of my sessions when I was interviewing someone with insomnia and uh, I was asking all these questions and I handed it over to him and, and for him to ask a question. And he said to the, and he said to the uh, patient, what do you think uh, good sleep looks like or what do you think a good sleeper does? And really good sleepers don't think about sleep. 
Uh, so that was a real like, oh, yeah, like if you flip this sort of thing around, they don't care so much. They're not really looking out for any sort of threats in their environment to stuff up their sleep, you know, whether it's light noise or anything like that. Um, and really sleep is about switching yourself off and being vulnerable as well. And that's absolutely OK. So it is really essential that we feel safe, you know, in your home, you've got shelter and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, certainly you can get this thing that develops, which is called like a, a attentional bias and you start to really sort of pay more attention to your environment. And really you want to do the complete opposite. You want to sort of let go of attention and just sort of more of a focus on feeling, I would have to say, probably on your body, on relaxation. Like sometimes for me, you know, we've been talking about international travel, you know, and, uh, you know, sitting up on a plane and trying to sleep, that sucks. So I sort of think to myself, oh, thank God I get to actually like lay horizontal right now. You know, those sorts of feelings are more likely to sort of help you drift to sleep or let sleep come in as opposed to sort of thinking, damn, look at that bloody light on that TV or or something like this that's shining, you know. So if yeah. anything, just try to sort of practice let going. I've got so many questions on the travel front and then on the eating and drinking habits before bed, but we'll get to that. I think that's a very fundamental piece um, I came across in the Why We Sleep book and it just shifted my thinking and I'm really keen to get your thoughts and maybe um, I'll get you to put some colour around how do we normally think of sleep and people will often just really boil it down to, oh, it's like how long you've been awake for, your sleep pressure, or they say, oh, it's just your circadian rhythm. And then what's interesting seeing that graph in the book, it's a function of both, it's a dual function. Um, and basically you fall asleep when your circadian is the lowest and you have the highest uh, sleep pressure. And I think a lot of people miss that, which is like the fundamental concept. Like it's not a single function. I think for I think for both Ali and I, we're both engineers, we're like it's a dual function. You can't look at it just linearly. Like it's just, you can't look at a single function. It doesn't make sense. But keen to get your thoughts. For the average, I think, person listener listening to this, they don't want to get bogged down with circadian rhythm, how it works, sleep pressure, how would you explain it to them? Like, this is a dual function. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, It can be approached from different ways. I mean, like, we did this one study which was called a meta-analysis. It was like, let's look at everything that could affect sleep, which was a stupid idea because it took ages. There was a lot out there. And we looked at a whole range of different things and, and really in relation to adolescents because they're a really interesting crew because they get really a lack of sleep compared to other developmental periods they definitely go through body clock issues they got the, they got their own stresses that adults go through for example um and when we looked at everything it was almost like if you looked at it on a pie chart it's sort of all of these different variables accounted for like 20 percent or 30 percent of the whole pie so there was a whole chunk that was missing. And, and really, when we were looking at these studies, none of them were measuring the circadian rhythm or sleep pressure. And it was like very clear to us, that's got to be the big chunk of the pie that's really important to determine sleep. Anytime that we're doing some sort of treatment for insomnia or, say, for example, circadian rhythms, if you're doing any sort of travel for jet lag, you're working on the biology. So foremost when i'm uh you know say for example training people to do what i do i say you've got to learn the biology of sleep those are the two key components it is sleep pressure it is the circadian rhythm so you deal with those and then that will help do a bulk of the help for that individual 
even if you look at the development of a human being, you know, you have babies that are inevitably going to have sleep issues for the first six months of their life. That's because their sleep biology is still developing. And roughly by six months of age, most of them will have their circadian rhythm locked in and they would have developed sleep pressure by then. And then you'll see that only 20% will have a sleep problem after six months, but that large component of them will have a sleep problem well before that. So there's all of these signals pointing towards sleep biology is really important. A good friend of mine recently just had a kid. She's about three weeks old. I'm sure if it was here would ask, Michael, how can I do this quicker? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll cost you $200 an hour. No, just <laughs> um, You said something before, Ivan, that, that, that good sleep is not necessarily just one thing. It could, it could differ for different people. We often hear that we need eight hours of sleep. Is that a myth? Maybe, because, I mean, a myth is a, is a sort of a pervasive idea that's out there and doesn't actually match the science. And, you know, the eight-hour thing has been out there for a long period of time. And, and we also believed the sleep scientists it was eight hours. There were these indications. But in some ways now, there's a lot more research coming out that is showing maybe people are getting closer to seven hours and seven hours might be actually okay. It sort of might be around that sort of peak sort of time where things seem to be in a bit of a sweet spot, a bit of a safe zone. Um, but I don't think I don't think it matters too much if it's seven or if it's eight. I think clearly when you look at some of this research, uh, whether it's looking at health indicators, whether it's looking at performance, if it's looking at mental health, often you'll see people that are getting too much sleep, so they're sort of maybe defined as like maybe more than nine or 10 hours of sleep, or those getting sort of five hours or less, maybe even six hours or less, those ends of the spectrum, those are the ones that are actually at risk for these sort of different issues. So if you're sort of around seven or eight, you're in a sort of sweet spot, that sort of peak sort of zone, so it shouldn't matter too much. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us from? What, I, what I've uh, decided to do recently was to completely remove alarm from, from my sleep. So the only thing that I really focus on is just go to sleep around 9 to 10.30 time. There's no like a particular exact time. I used to be very particular, I'm not anymore. Um, because I realized it's just sucking the life, like the any, everything, every joy out of my life. I would be somewhere, but like I need to get to home because I need to be in bed by 9.30 in two seconds. Um, but but what I'm focusing on is just now going to bed at the same time, roughly in the same window, but no alarm, and and just wake up without any alarm, and and basically wake up the moment my body wakes up, I just wake up. But it's like four anything as long as past four thirty, I'll wake up. What are your thoughts on that? Even though sometimes it's only like six hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep. So, yeah, you brought up a few uh, really important points. I think the the first point is that. A bedtime routine and having a consistent bedtime is actually important. And again, like a lot of our research has been with teenagers. And with teenagers, one of the best things that you can do, especially, you know, if there are any parents listening and they've got emerging teenagers, is to set their bedtime for as long as possible. And not just during school nights, but also weekends. Because what we clearly see time and time again uh, the teens that don't have a set bedtime, they get less sleep. They are more prone to have increased depression symptoms, for example. 
And a, a new study that we did, which wasn't necessarily cross-sectional, we followed uh, over 2,000 teenagers, which happened to be across the COVID period. So they were measured at 2019 and then 2020. We actually saw that about 10% of parents, initially they didn't give their teens a set bedtime. Uh, but during this year, when COVID hit, 10% of them said, no, you're going to actually have uh, a bedtime now. And it was those teens that actually got protected with their sleep, which was obviously a very important thing. We haven't really seen that before. We always thought that once you've given them no bedtime, that's it. You can't get it back. You're going to be in a dogfight. So the, and the crazy thing is that we let go of that. And then as adults, we don't give a shit. We don't give ourselves, uh, you know, we don't self-regulate and have that bedtime. Uh, yet that is something that it can actually help us. A lot of people have been focusing on how do I fall asleep faster? Well, you know, you've got to start before then, really, when it comes to it. You don't have to be too strict like, you know, 9.30 or 10 o'clock, but just have a window. You know, I think in the past we've called it like a bedtime window, you know, that you'll try to sort of go, okay, around this sort of time, that's when I'm going to try to uh, fall asleep. And if you do that, I think what I've sort of um, made it in terms of like a metaphor or analogy, I don't know the difference, but it's almost like when we're driving, you know, we try to prevent risk by giving ourselves three seconds between us and the car in front of us. Now, if you are starting to, you know, be very, I wouldn't say rigid, but having a consistent bedtime, making sure it's early enough, therefore you're setting yourself up just in case something happens. If you get woken up during the night, if something bad happens, then you're more likely to get that sleep by the time that you need to get up. So it's really sort of protecting the rest of your night by having that sort of early bedtime, so to speak. And like what you're saying, if you focus on, I'm going to sort of fall asleep around this zone, then it allows you to sort of naturally wake up. Whereas if you're not so regulated, time can get away from you and you're going to go to bed later, you'll likely then sleep in later. When you are sleeping in later, you're not getting light to your eyes. You're not getting that resetting of your body clock. And that's when things can start to become irregular. I think Ali has been really keen on the tips and the tricks. And I'm kind of, my brain is going to the deep science. Um, I love this. I love this. Um, now, I think last time I was trying to understand, wrap my head around circadian rhythm, sleep pressure. I think my takeaway was, yeah, sleep, you know, sleep pressure, how long you've been awake for, um, you know, generally about 12 hours of being awake, should be dozing off. So can your rhythm, not sure how much of that you can control. And um, I think part of it was almost your nucleus, suprachiasmatic nucleus, I think the term was, which is part of your brain. It's fixed, it's locked in. Now, what I'm curious about, for example, Ali and I were born overseas on the other side of the world. That's locked in to what extent? At 18, at 20, at 30, you move countries. That's a different, completely different time zone. Right? I'm very curious. Like people travel, they move countries all the time. So does that mean you only have the sleep pressure available to play with? Or could you actually do something about your circadian rhythm? Like how much of that is fixed versus it's controllable? You can yeah. play with it. Yeah, I would actually say that your circadian rhythm can be played around with more than your sleep pressure. Um, we, I don't think we really know enough about how you can strengthen sleep pressure, really, when it comes to it. Um, I mean, you can, like what you're sort of alluding to there, I mean, it's like you um, can at least quantify it. I've been awake this long. 
And I know when I've been awake this long before, I know I should start to get sleepy by a certain time. But in terms of your circadian rhythm, you can change the timing of where that lies with light scheduled at certain times and darkness at certain times. Uh, I would say then the next most powerful way to change your rhythms is through melatonin. And then to a lesser extent with movement. And uh, the, I think some key factors here are genetics. So there are some people that are certainly will be more of a night owl than uh, morning people. I mean, I'm a night owl for sure. And we've done this so many times when we've interviewed families, we've sort of tried to get an assessment of what they are. You know, they might be more of a night owl. And then we sort of say, you know, what about your parents? And the parents will be there and we'll ask them, we'll ask them about their grandparents. And you can see this lineage for sure. So uh, there's that component to it. But we also change the timing of our circadian rhythm through development. So between 10 to about 20 years of age, we naturally will become more of a late night person. And it's around about sort of 2021 that that starts to very, very gradually start to become earlier. Now, I've just, you know, knocked on the door 50 and, you know, I'm sort of like, I can't stay up as late as I usually could, but I'm still a bit of a night owl compared to probably some other 50 year olds, but I'm starting to become more of an early morning person. So, you know, you won't notice that so much because, you know, it takes decades to do, but definitely it comes down to genetics. It'll come down to age but you can definitely play around with it with light for sure and darkness. That's one of the key elements I would have to say, but melatonin is another sort of close second. Right. I think you mentioned a great stat there. Um, so you said about, I think from memory it was like 40% of people are morning people and 30 and night hours and the remaining are somewhere in between. Is that is that about right? Or go to my memory here, but that's your area. So I'll let you... Um, and how does that affect, I think, how we've been set up from a workforce perspective? I think Matthew Walker talks a lot about that in his book, which I thought was really interesting. We have a nine to five culture. You expect it to be, be pretty much your peak performance from nine to five, which is completely unrealistic, particularly if you're night owl. That's like the worst time for you to be at your peak performance. What can people do? I mean, you're a night owl. You've been battling with this. You've been studying. Do you do work later in the night? <laughs> um, I'm lucky I, I now work for a Swedish company, so they're starting to wake up now and it's the afternoon. So this is perfect. And, and But it's a great example because we've gone through COVID, there's more working from home and there's that hybrid approach now. I think, I, I don't know if it was this week, but the Commonwealth Bank now are actually sort of now forcing people to come into the office. And I get that there's some, you know, value from actually interacting with people, you know, not just for the benefit of the company, but also for the benefit of the individual. But that uh, that ability to be able to work from home allows those people that might have a later chronotype to be able to get enough sleep so that they can function well. And it probably also allows them to probably work when they are functioning better as well. So I think we're in a much better phase. It's one of the silver linings from COVID compared to pre-COVID when, like you're saying, nine to five, and you've got to actually like try to work and function and not sleep in that zone when other people probably could sleep in until 10, 1030. So I think things are a lot better now. Um, in, in, in the social media and, and other sleep experts, they talk about sleep bedtime routine. If you were to give someone tips of this is what you need to do before bed so you can have a good night's sleep, what would that be? 
don't listen to flipping social media and three, two, one <laughs> routines and all this sort of stuff. Every time I see it, I'm like, no, there's no evidence for that. <laughs> and so here's, here's one classic example. So, you know, he's, he's, he's part of this three, two, one method or nine, two, three, one method. You know, it always ends in the one. And often in that one, they're saying in the hour before bed, don't use technology, you know, and then they'll go on and say about the screen light has blue light within it and blue light can suppress melatonin and make it hard to fall asleep. Now, basically, we've tested this. We were the first people to test this in the world where we had a bright iPad shining bright into people's faces in the hour before bed and we had a dim iPad. We also had the F dot Lux back then because Apple hadn't invented night shift mode, which reduced the blue in the light. And basically, I think it took probably an extra three or four minutes longer to fall asleep after having a bright iPad in their face. Now, that's a really interesting study, but it's only one study. And the thing about science is that you need to have other people test this. And so far, there's been probably 10 to 12 studies that have looked at this in so many different ways, whether it's in a laboratory at home, whether they measured with EEG like we did or with wearables, whether it was over here in Australia or Harvard, they're all finding something very similar. And, you know, in Matthew Walker's book, he cites the Harvard study, which came out the year after us and noted that it took significantly longer to fall asleep. And technically speaking, and statistically speaking, it did come up with a statistical significant difference here. It took 9.9 .9 minutes longer. Now, who gives a shit about 10 minutes longer if you get to be on your iPad reading as opposed to reading a printed book? And, you know, it's been nice now that um, what I actually did a couple of years ago is that there was a, a, basically a seminar that a lot of sleep scientists attend to, and I and I provided a, basically a rundown and a summary of all of these studies and, and what they were showing. Uh, Matt wasn't actually at that particular um, seminar, but I caught, called out to him and challenged him. I said, can you stop with this calling out of the Harvard study and, and look actually at all of these particular studies? And to his credit now, you know, he's come out with a couple of podcasts saying, that he's starting to change his mind is reversing his sort of uh, take on the whole blue light coming from screens and affecting sleep. So I think it's really important that people just uh, have their filters on when it comes to listening to a lot of this sort of stuff, whether it's on TikTok, even LinkedIn, you know, and they sort of see these sort of, uh, you know, buzzwords and phrases and so forth. They really have to sort of look out for people that might be doing the science. And, you know, I, I really like the fact that Matt was, he, he put himself out there and he went, you know, this is what I think, you know, put it in a book. Bill Gates said it was like one of his top five Christmas books that you got so much press from it. And now he's reversing that. And it takes a lot of guts to do that. So, you know, definitely, even if you need to follow someone like Matthew Walker, do it. Can I ask a question about technology? Yeah, the blue light. Um, and I, I, know I was I was listening to some of your snippets from the Sleep Cycle app, which we should talk about in a second. And you talked about this. What about the technology itself? If I am on my iPad or iPhone right before bed and I am downloading all this information and my brain's going, does that impact my sleep? It would, I feel like there is a personality type thing there as well because I feel like because I get overwhelmed, overwhelmed very quickly with too much information at the same time. So I know that being on my iPhone or iPad before bed does may impact my sleep. There's no science behind this. 
I just feel it. But what are your thoughts on that? So probably one way to look at it is that around about 2010, simultaneously, we were doing a study where we were looking at what you do in that hour before bed. And there were also some researchers over in Sweden that were doing the same thing. We actually found the same thing. Like they were testing violent video games. So we we were actually getting teenagers to play Call of Duty in bed in the hour before bed versus watching TV. And again, it took about three or four minutes longer to fall asleep after playing COD, you know, so obviously teenagers are going to go, yeah, I know what I choose. And so it really sort of surprised us. And, and, you know, we've repeated that experiment multiple times, but the key difference is that the teenagers went to bed when they should have gone to bed. And you were actually brought up in your question, you know, there must be something about someone's personality and you're absolutely spot on because after a while when, you know, we're playing, we're getting these people, we're trying to stuff up sleep with cod and bright iPads and nothing's working. And we're like, what's going on here? Because, you know, things happen out there in the real world. And we went, okay, well, let's just take the brakes off. Let's just allow them to play for as long as they want. So we basically started to investigate this and it wasn't necessarily the action first person shooter games it was more so those really good story-based games that we noticed people were getting hooked on that so we then sort of uh, started to test those video games and said to people basically play for as long as you like but before we actually started collecting the data we were going like okay now let's just think ahead here what could determine the difference between someone turning the game off at the time that they should to fall asleep versus those that basically just keep going and powering through so we had a look at the literature, had a look at research. It was sort of really on the front line sort of stuff. And for the first study, we found that it was really this personality characteristic of risk risk taking. And it wasn't necessarily the rewards. It was really the consequences. Those that really felt like the consequences of taking risks were really bad. Those guys were more likely to stop the gaming earlier and others would keep going. In a subsequent study, we found another personality characteristic called flow, which is where you get immersed in your, not necessarily technology device, but it could be knitting, could be reading, for example. You sort of lose track of time. Those people that were more likely to get in that flow state would turn off their video game about an hour and a half later than those that were sort of more self-regulated. So what we started to then learn is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's basically there's this interaction between what the type of technology is and that personality characteristics of that individual. And unfortunately, we learned that technology companies like video game companies, they already knew about flow state and they knew how to keep people in a flow state. They already are aware of this psychology. So it's certainly out there, whether it's going to be certain apps where you've got to scroll and they might sort of randomize and jumble up your... uh, you know, your feed or, you know, dare I say YouTube as well, it sort of starts to predict what you'll like and they'll show you long videos as well uh, because the longer you're there, the longer you're exposed to ads. So certainly we're noticing it's really an interaction between the two personality and the type of technology use. Michael, do you see an ethical use of, maybe not ethical, I think complementary is a better word, for technology, maybe AI, maybe other technology to actually help people become more aware of the impact of sleep. And I mentioned this because I think the number of people I know who are relatively obsessed with the Whoop or the Apple on the data of sleep, 
the amount of times they talk about it in a day, it really makes me think, and that's back to your point. I'm like, you had bad sleep, but you've mentioned it three times today. And you're just making your day worse and worse and worse. So it just made me think, is there a flip side to technology? Is there a way? You know, this is almost the unintended consequence of technology. And it's such a trend in every industry we see and a work in the sector and I see every time. Is there a flip side? Could we I mean, use technology better or AI to help us build a better relationship with sleep? Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I can answer that in two different forms of technology use, which is that there are some leaders when it comes to researching technology use and sleep saying maybe we shouldn't focus so much on having technology use before bed, but potentially have it when people wake up, as long as they can actually still regulate. I mean, that's that's the ideal flipping, isn't it? It's like you wake up and what do people do that they will often wake up and they'll reach for their phone. That's one of the first things that they do, which if you are interacting with that, maybe if you get that sort of, you know, bright screen and you're aware of the time, then that might help to wake you up. So there's that sort of angle when it comes to technology use. But um, it's certainly something that we're very mindful at at sleep cycle, um, really that balance between how can we really just benefit the users when it comes to the machine learning that we're doing within the app um, and you know part of that is education i think it's highly important we're, we're really i mean you know, hopefully you're sort of picking this up from even this podcast we're trying to break through a lot of this information that they might sort of read on the internet and just bring the science directly to them and educate them uh, when it comes to doing that and when we've got almost like 2 million people using the app every single night, they're not all the same. So we've got to really use AI to sort of go, okay, what's going to be relevant for this particular person? What's the likelihood that this particular piece of education is going to really benefit them the most versus other ones? Otherwise, people will just switch off. So I think there's a huge amount to learn. And I think probably, you know, if you look at chat, GPT, that's an example where people are starting to learn about that sort of stuff. You know, they're starting to ask questions about it. So, you know, you know, this possibility of being able to integrate something like that with their sleep stats that they can get from, you know, say, for example, the sleep cycle app and even ask follow up questions about it. And I think, you know, I've, I've tested chat GPT when it comes to, say, for example, the blue light uh, uh, before bed and so forth. Then it keeps telling me the same things from the Internet. So it's not quite there yet. Um, but certainly I would have to say that it's definitely possible and to tailor it to that particular individual. Maybe a good segue to, to talk about sleep cycle a bit more. So I signed up with that this morning. So you're going to have one extra data point to play with. Um, yeah, Tell us a bit more about sleep cycle. Yeah, so um, I, I definitely heard about Sleep Cycle when I was uh, at the university doing research and teaching and so forth. And um, it was they actually launched around 2009. It was sort of part of a different package of uh, apps that they were sort of testing out. And out of all of the apps that they were releasing, Sleep Cycle just became uh, the most popular one. And initially it was really using the phone's accelerometer. So it was placed on the mattress and it would really pick up the movement that was occurring when people were moving around in that sort of way. And uh, what they did in 2018 was to really change that technology and pivot. And they've managed to also acquire uh, some excellent machine learning experts that were really uh, great when it came to sort of signal processing and, and audio. 
And so they really flipped the algorithm to go from movement to actually audio detection. So now what happens is that the phone is actually by the bedside and what it is is picking up this continuous audio signal. And that just really changed the game. Uh, so when it comes to the detection of sleep and wake, what will happen is that uh, when people move, you know, they'll just basically brush against the quilt or the sheet or something like that, make other sorts of sounds. And that's what the um, app and the algorithm will pick up. And that's obviously very similar to what we were using in the past, which is called wrist actigraphy or some of the accelerometer stuff that you get in some of your wearables. But I think now that it's also audio, it can actually pick up uh, snoring. It can pick up uh, coughing. And, you know, it really has changed the game because even when we, if you know, we're... Uh, we're around so many different phones that uh, we actually analysed uh, coughing, uh, say, for example, in the US uh, around the time that Omicron was coming out. And what we saw is that when we sort of plotted uh, on the same timeline, the sort of increase in Omicron confirmed cases with our coughing data, our coughing data was showing an increase in coughing in that population about a week before these confirmed cases. So it goes to show the potential for not just for sleep, but just even for general health is uh, just massive. Um, and well, how, so, yeah. how accurate are these wearable devices when they, with, the, with the data they give you about sleep and your sleep? It's, it's probably an answer to give in two forms. One is really uh, how good is it in detecting sleep versus wake? And then there's, okay, how good is it once it does detect sleep, the different stages of sleep? So, I mean, I've been a real strong advocate within Sleep Cycle to say I think we should probably stay away from the whole sleep staging stuff. I think it's, in some ways, it's a bit of a mess, it, you know, and it's tricky to get right. And I think we're not in control of how people really perceive that information. Um, and certainly when I started out in my career, like going back probably mid-2000s, and what would happen is that people who would have, have insomnia, they would actually come to us after they had a night with EEG, and in the morning they'd fill out a sleep diary. So we had that information. And what would happen more often than not is that people with insomnia would say, I had this terrible sleep, look at this, I was awake for two hours and so forth. But when we have a look at this gold standard objective evidence, you could see that they were awake for probably 10 minutes. We thought this was fantastic. You know, we could actually say, hey, you are actually getting sleep. But that was the science of it. The actual art of it we had to learn because the amount of people that would then just respond in different ways, some of them would be despondent. They were like, oh, I really thought I was feeling crap because of my sleep. Now you're telling me that's not the actual source of the problem. Or they'd go, I'm really pissed off with you. You're telling me I don't have a problem. You know, that people would react in different ways or some people would take it really well. So I've already been there and I, and I think that's a tricky sort of thing. But in terms of sleep stage detection, they're getting better, um, some of these devices and some of the different technology. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be recording anything on your head. Some of those are obviously great. But you've got some nearables as well that are using like radar technology that are actually showing some really good stats. Um, but in terms of sleep detection, I would have to say that they're getting better and better. Um, at the end of the day, I've been always a, a proponent of people's perceptions of their own sleep. 
I think it it's it's a nice sort of like what you were saying before. I mean, it's like a compliment to your own perception, and and you know sometimes it's going to get it wrong. Sometimes you'll get it wrong, and I think if you put the two together, it probably then strengthens your idea about sleep and starts to get you more interested and possibly educated when it comes to knowing what's good sleep and what works for you. Yeah, I mean that was my follow up actually, Michael. Great segue. Has there been any research around correlating, let's say, some of the data you get when you wake up, right? So you look at you what or you look at, you know, uh, your watch, Apple Watch or Samsung, and it goes, oh, great, you've had great REM sleep, you slept well, your recovery rate was high, and then you correlated that to how they truly feel based on the human judgment. So basically, is there a way, I mean, for us to almost correlate that? Like, because I'm always thinking about, isn't a human just good enough to wake up and really look at themselves and say, how do I feel today without looking at any data? Just look at like your eyes, your bags, and we can look at mine. You can tell I had not great sleep the last two nights and how you feel, how you focused when you walk, how, like how alert. Like I personally feel it. I don't use any technology and I know very well when I wake up what sort of day, but I don't like let it sit there. But I was curious to your point, complimentary, but yeah, it's almost like correlating both. Here's the human judgment. Here's how you feel. This is what the data says. Well, it's up to you kind of what, what you decide. Has there been any studies around this correlation? In some ways there has, um, and and but not necessarily now in the sort of new sense. I, th- I mean, and exactly what you've said, I would love to do that, but uh, obviously it's a huge, massive experiment around the world, but which would take a lot to do. But if you go back to... Um, something that was related to what I was saying before, where you've got some sort of objective measure of sleep, whether it's wrist actigraphy or polysomnography, you know, EEG, and you've also got people's perceptions about it. There's been some really nice studies where people the next morning would say to, to, to someone, okay, what's your perception of your sleep first? And then they'll give feedback of this is what actually it showed. And what's fascinating is that they've manipulated that feedback to say it was either good or bad. And it does actually have an effect in terms of the pe- the person's perception of their sleep when they're really looking at it. Um, there was a lovely study done by um, one of Leon Lack's uh, PhD students, Jeremy Mercer, where he did a series of studies, uh, but the last one was really nice where in real time he had people with insomnia sleeping in the lab. He could see in real time what stage of sleep that they were in and he would sound a tone at different sort of stages and ask them prior to the time where you were awake or you're asleep. And if they said that they were awake, they'll say, how long were you awake for? If you're asleep, how long were you asleep for? And then what he would do is then give feedback on what they actually saw. When they got these people in that got this feedback, they showed that their perception of their sleep improved, which is really fascinating. And I think what's really fascinating about this is that the distance in time between that feedback and the person's memory of their sleep, because some studies have done it probably a few days later. Some some of them have done it a week later and they're not getting such strong effects. But if you do it really close to the time, it looks like it can be actually quite a powerful and a therapeutic uh, benefit for people. Coffee and sleep. Thoughts? I love coffee. Um, it's great to wake up. Um, I mean, like I mean, you're going to Europe. Coffee should be part of your jet lag schedule. You need to have lots of coffee. You should be having coffee after 6 p.m. tonight. Hopefully you haven't got a morning flight. No, 
later? No, not quite. I actually fly out tomorrow at 9.30 p.m., which is right. a really nasty flight, I think. And I land in Finland at 3 p.m. Yeah. And um, I was keen to get your thoughts, but I'll let you answer Ali's question, maybe using this example. You know, coffee, sleeping on the plane, eating, normally my technique is match the destinations time zone, but I'll let you answer that part. Yep. Well, definitely when it comes to coffee for you, because what you the thing is that they're starting to wake up now and this is towards the end of your day. So you've got to stay up later and later. Clearly, you know, something like coffee is going to help you stay up later and later. So definitely, you know, caffeine after 6 p.m., that definitely has an effect. It's a bit of a small effect when we looked at it. But this whole notion of you shouldn't have coffee after 3 or 2 or 12 when we analysed the data, we couldn't actually see that that was having a strong effect on people's sleep at night. But if it was after 6pm, that's when we saw it was starting to have a bit of an effect. And you've got to understand people have different tolerances. Like I come from an Italian family and it was always tradition that after this massive meal that you would have an espresso and they would go to sleep. But anyone who was new to the family that would come and have this espresso, they'd be beaming until 3 or 4 a.m. that first time, you know, the first time, but then they tolerated to it. But Certainly in your situation, yeah, definitely have it uh, as late as you can. The The notion is then that you'll be staying up later. And like I was mentioning before, when it comes to changing circadian rhythms, which is what you've got to do, you'll be getting more light at night. And you've got to really get a lot of bright light really late to sort of signal to your body clock to drift later and later. So you're getting more in time with Finland. So that's pretty much... Uh, some of the sort of general things when it comes to caffeine. Certainly have it during the day if you feel like you need to have it to help increase your wakefulness. It'll sort of roughly get to, dare I say, therapeutic levels about 30 minutes after you consume it. Be aware, though, that uh, it's not just in uh, coffee. It's in black tea. It's in decaf tea, you know, just at a lesser extent, and decaf coffee. It's in chocolate. The darker the chocolate, the more caffeine that's in there. White chocolate doesn't have it. Green tea has it. You know, some of these energy drinks have it. So just be aware of if you are actually consuming caffeine because there was one dude that I saw and when I asked him, do you have, you know, caffeine late at night? He said, no, I don't drink coffee or tea. And then I asked him, what about chocolate? And he said, oh, yeah, I have a block of dark chocolate. And, and that's got like a few espressos in it worth of caffeine. So you definitely have to be aware of this sort of stuff. Some say, some say it may not affect you falling asleep but the quality of your sleep may be affected if you have it any time after 12 o'clock because the impact will be there in your blood for the next 12 14 hours yeah I, I would say that i mean and this is not necessarily scientific but certainly again going back to those times when we were doing uh, eegs and having a look at people's stages of sleep there was only one occasion where I saw someone who was consuming a lot of caffeine and it was affecting their sleep stages for sure. They weren't having these nice sort of time spent in each stage of sleep. It was really chopped up and fragmented. And that was an Englishman who was having like a dozen black teas per day. So, you know, I, and that was throughout the whole day, morning through to night. Um, and, you know, sure enough, that was one area that we cut back on because, uh, you know, he was English. We couldn't completely abstain or anything like that. Uh, but uh, I would I haven't seen evidence though of you know after twelve o'clock after two p.m. would still have an effect like that. I haven't seen yeah any substantive evidence. Ali, I'm keen to just continue the example because I'm going to live this tomorrow, and I feel like our listeners want to get onto this. So you do what you can before you fly to the 
so basically I'm starting to climatize essentially stay up late today you know if I can screen light you know have another coffee in a bit you know basically go to bed a bit later which I which I can do because of my flies later you know tomorrow night then you've got the plane part and what's interesting when you fly is like they serve you food based on the obviously optimal time of the flight the cruise not necessarily when you should be eating <laughs> that's my reflection so what can you actually do on the plane like whether it's coffee whether it's food whether it's sleep um melatonin tablets you mentioned melatonin earlier i mean travel is a good excuse but like when do you do it um within healthy dosages you know when you arrive when you're on the plane yep yep so certainly the key thing is you've got to stay up as late as possible and therefore sleep in as long as possible so and if we're talking about light being the most potent you need to get light as late as possible so like you say on the plane you know if they take off at 9 30 they take off you're going to have half an hour before they stabilize and eventually they'll bring out drinks and so forth so definitely have coffee believe it or not have the meal but importantly you know be awake have your eyes open so you're getting at least some of that light um now my uh phd supervisors leon lack being one of them um he invented these retimer glasses so they're portable glasses that have led lights that you can actually shine light into your eyes so fortunately we can take those and they are available you can buy them you can even get them on gumtree so i'm not necessarily spruiking the company um but uh that they will be something that i will use to try to really push my circadian rhythm later now the issue is that I have is that then they'll wake you up early than you need to if you're trying to basically acclimatize to Europe. Um, what I will do is I'll just have a beanie. I'll use that for my sleep mask and it also covers my ears so I can, you know, if I need to have something uh, in my ears to sort of soften those sort of sounds and so forth. But certainly I will try to have um, basically uh, as little as light as possible for as long as possible. And when I wake up in the morning, so to speak, on the flight, that's when I'll take melatonin because that's really signaling to my body clock, no, it's time to still continue sleeping in. So that's really the general plan that you do for yourself, regardless of what they're doing on the plane and also what's happening overseas. Because when you get overseas, you know, that first night, it's going to be a struggle to stay awake. So you need to stay awake as much as possible, have caffeine, get light as much as possible. You're going to go to sleep probably that first night the sleep pressure is going to absolutely kick in and you might sleep well but then once that sleep pressure has been released then you're going to start to probably wake up at 2 a.m or 3 a.m or 4 a.m or something like that so stay in darkness for as much as possible you can be on your phone just have it just as dim as possible because it's, otherwise it's going to get damn boring and um try to have melatonin uh, during that time when you've woken up at, say, 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever, and then gradually each mornings after that take the melatonin later. So you're sort of dragging your sleep later is the whole idea and therefore dragging your circadian rhythm later. Michael, um, I'd like to slowly wrap up. I just I have one question. If you were to give someone an advice in terms of the sleep and the lifestyle, what would you tell him to make sure that to, to help them sleep better and therefore function better? It's always hard because, you know, sleep is like the canary in the mind. It, it's so sensitive to so many different things. Uh, you know, that's like when we're seeing someone for the first time, we, it, we have to spend an hour asking a whole host of questions. So we know for this individual, what's impacting them the most, but hopefully people 
you know, if they're listening to this podcast, they can sort of think about some of these things. You know, what are some of the things that are probably affecting me the most? They might not have understood circadian rhythms or chronotype before and go, of course, I'm a night owl. That's why I take ages to fall asleep because my body's not ready until midnight. And, you know, what can I do about it? Well, accept it. Or maybe you can do light therapy in the morning if you wish. Uh, take melatonin in the evening to try to help you fall asleep earlier. Um, some people might be sensitive to caffeine. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, if it sort of helps in terms of finding credible sources of information, we've talked about um, uh, Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. That's a great one if people want to sort of start to get into some of those readings. I've got uh, a website called Wink Sleep, so you can search that up. We've got heaps of blogs, like about close to 150 there, and that's intended to provide you with science-based information, so that can sort of be another source of material. Uh, and I should also mention, at least in Australia, you've got the Sleep Health Foundation, which have also a lot of fact sheets that you can look up. And they're really written by sleep scientists and practitioners from around Australia. Uh, we have an ending tradition to the podcast. So the, the previous guest has left you a question, uh, which I'm going to play. To the next guest, what is the meaning of life? So have fun. Enjoy it. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. 